0: Alright, well as I said, I am extremely grateful to be here today, and we are continuing in our study of Luke, um, and uh, we didn't get to Luke um, on Mother's Day, which is fine, mothers are important, and that ended up taking up our time last time, so we are coming, coming back to Luke today, and we are starting... Um, in Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 40. And uh, I just really have enjoyed Luke. Um, I've always appreciated Luke as a writer because he's a, he's a detail-oriented writer, and I think that is really what he brings to the table. Um, and also, the fact that he was a physician, he's called um Luke the beloved physician the fact that he was a physician means that when he writes about these miracles uh you can believe that they're true because a medical doctor would not write this lightly and so it just adds another facet to the greatness of our God that he would persuade Luke to write um th- this narrative which he wrote to Theophilus um and then, of course, he follows up with the book of Acts, which also is full of great detail, which, Lord willing, if he tarries, I would like to get into after Luke. Um, and, but we're going to start here with Luke um, uh, 9, 37-40, and we're going to talk about uh, Jesus casting out a demon, and then also talking about how to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And my first point today is a desperate man seeks help. Let's start with verse 37. And it came to pass on that next day when they came down from the hill, much people met him. And behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is mine only child. And lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him that he frometh again, and bruiseth bruiseth him hardly, departeth from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. And Jesus answering said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. And as he was yet coming, the devil threw him down and tear him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child, and delivered him again to his father. And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. But while they wondered every one on these things which Jesus did, he said unto them, Let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. And I, I overshot that first section a little bit, but it's a continuing narrative, so I, I thought it was good to keep going. And here's the situation, and I believe that th- this is the same uh, situation where uh, in, a, in another uh, passage along the same lines, we have the man saying, Lord, I believe help my unbelief. The first thing that I want to uh, bring before you today is the fact that sometimes, or oftentimes, it is only in desperation that we... Seek God. And this situation is hopeless. This child has been dealing with this demon. And he can't get rid of it himself. And so this man desperately calls to Jesus and says, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is my only child. And I I think about this man's response and how he was desperate. He had probably tried other things. I don't know what his journey was, but he was desperate. This was not just a, if you have a moment, Lord, come and see my son. This was a desperate plea for help. And if we can look at Mark 9, 23 and 24, it actually... Goes into a little more detail of this story, and then we'll, uh, and as we look at these verses, we'll see even a little more here. So, Mark 9, 23 and 24, if someone has that, they can go ahead and read it for us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, All things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. I don't know about you, but I've been there. There have been times in my life where, despite my best efforts, I still have doubt. And sometimes that prayer has been mine, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Sometimes, more than just believing, we need to ask God for the power to believe. You know, we read in Ephesians chapter 2 verses, uh, or in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And we often think about it as the grace is in of ourselves. But if you read that sentence, the grace is in of ourselves and neither is the faith. God, somehow, through a measure that we do not understand, gives us the faith to believe. And then we believe and we are given salvation. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, no man seeks after God. And then the psalmist says, early will I seek you. Well, why did he seek God? Because God came to him and made himself known to him. And then he sought God. And God was able to say of David, I have found a man after my own heart who will do all my will. But it was only because of the working of God in David's life. The Psalms are full of the work of God in David's life. And David is simply writing down, this is what God has done in my life, and this is what he can do in yours. Because we have another gentleman in David's life, Saul who was God's first choice, I think, perhaps to teach the children of Israel a lesson. That if you're going to ask for a king on your own terms, I'll give you the kind of king you want. And you'll see what that's like. And Saul was visited by God as well. But Saul did not have a personal connection, a personal relationship with God. For when Samuel comes to Saul and says... The kingdom's being ripped away from you. What does Saul say? He says, come with me that we may worship your God. It wasn't Saul's God. But I just think about this man and I think about his desperation and how he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus saw his heart and realized his earnestness and healed his son. He could have said, you have to have full belief. He could have said, I'm waiting for more. But no, he didn't. The desire of this man to believe was enough for Jesus to heal his son. And it would be nice to say that on a sunshiny day when the sun's shining down and everything's going right, and we're tiptoeing through the tulips, so to speak, that we're thinking of God and His greatness. And, and I hope that we are. I really do. But you know, one of my friends asked me a few years ago, he said, why does God always get out His two-by-four on me? And I said to him, the reason God gets out the two-by-four is because we fail to listen to the still, small voice. I became a believer when I was five years old. I have no doubt that at that point I did business with God. I knew where my permanent destination was going to be. But I still had a lot to deal with. And over the next nine years, I fought and argued with God. And eight years after that was my lowest point when my baby brother passed away. Went to bed for a nap, never woke up. And it was at that point, at that darkest point in my life, that God began to really work on me. And I I have to admit that it took another almost year before I would listen to him but I was a captive audience, I couldn't choose not to go to church, couldn't even run away, because my battery would only take me so far. My parents would load me up in the car every Sunday, every Wednesday at that time, bring me to church, even though I didn't want to be there. And God held on to me tight, and he brought me from a place of feeling utterly useless, because this is what I told my mom when my brother died, I said, why did he take my brother, was perfectly healthy and leave me because I'm useless. But God took me from that point to a point about a year later when I was 14 years old when he said, Andrew I don't need to change you on the outside to use you. I only need to change your heart and you need to let me use you for it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I say all this to let you know that like this man, I was helpless. I couldn't do anything to make my life better. I couldn't bring my brother back no matter how much I wanted to. I remember the paramedics working on him and hoping and praying that they could get him to breathe again. I've never felt more desperate, more helpless. But it was the turning point of my spiritual life. The time when I began the journey of stopping to make, stopping to make, to stop stop making excuses. I still do from time to time because I'm human. But God has taught me a lot. I have a friend that's walking through a real dark time right now. And my prayer for her is that God will do the same. Because the one thing that I, I had solace with in the years following my brother's death is that he never had to grow up in this sinful world. And that because he was a baby, I believe with all my heart that I, he will not come back to me. But as David said, I will go to him. And I am very excited for that day. He will never see me in a wheelchair. He'll never see me as a cripple because when he sees me, I'll be in my glorified body. He'll pain-free and ready to worship God in person for all eternity. And so I want to ask you, have you been where this man is? Have you been in a situation where you have no hope? You know, I heard a story and it bears repeating about a lady who who had a problem. I don't even remember what the problem was, but she went through all these man-made ideas on how to solve the problem, and it didn't work. And she was sitting in church, and someone said, well, have you prayed about it? And she said, has it come to that? Is that the only thing we can do? That's a typical human response. But the Christian response should be the first thing we do before we do anything else is to pray. I think we often don't see what God is doing. I remember that story. I think it was of Elijah. Might have been Elisha. I always get them a little mixed up. But there was a story where His assistant was afraid. He thought they were going to be in danger for their life. And Elijah prayed that the servant would be able to see. And the man saw. And he saw all the hosts of heaven around. I believe angels are real. I believe they're here right now. Angels and demons are in battle for this world. But if we are saved, we can have comfort that even in our darkest times, or perhaps especially in our darkest times, God is with us. I want to share this story from uh, our Daily Bread. During the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century, German pastor Paul Gerhardt and his family were forced to flee from their home. One night as they stayed in a small village inn, homeless and afraid, his wife broke down and cried in despair. To comfort her, Gerhardt reminded her of the scriptural promises about God's provision and keeping. Then going out to the garden to be alone, he too broke down and wept. He felt he had come to his darkest hour. Soon afterward, Gerhard felt the burden lifted and sensed anew the Lord's presence. Taking his pen, he wrote a hymn that has brought comfort to many. Give to the winds thy fears, hope, and beyond dismay. God hears thy sighs and counts thy tears. God shall lift up thy head. Through waves and clouds and storms, he gently clears the way. Wait thou his time, so shall the night soon end in joyous day. It is often in our darkest times that God makes his presence known most clearly. He uses our sufferings and troubles to show us that he is our only source of strength. And when we see this truth, like Pastor Gerhard, we receive new hope. Are you facing a great trial? Take heart, put yourself in God's hands, wait for his timing, and he will give you a song in the night. Luke 9, 41-44, getting back to our text. And Jesus answering said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. And as he was yet coming, the devil threw him down and tear him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him to his father. And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. But while they wondered at every one at these things which Jesus did, he said unto them, let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them that they perceived it not, and feared to ask him what he was saying. Then there arose a reasoning among them, which which of them should be the greatest. And Jesus perceiving the thought of their heart took a child and set it by him and said, Whoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is last among you, the same shall be great. So he does this miracle, he heals this young man of the demon. And then uh, they're, they're wondering at this thing. They saw Jesus cast out this demon, which they couldn't do. And just as he often does, he uses physical healing to get to a spiritual truth. And he says to them in verse 44, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men. Hands of men. And this will not be the last time you'll see this phrase either, but they understood not the same. And they feared to ask him what it meant. You'll see this a lot with the disciples. They understood not. We have the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, to guide us into all truth. We also have this promise in James chapter one that if we lack wisdom, we can ask of God and He will give to all men liberally. So then, what do they do? They go right from Right from this, I don't understand what Jesus is saying about that He's gonna be delivered into the hands of men to who is going to be the greatest. And I can hide my thoughts from you. Because you're not mind readers. Now granted, a lot of times I wear my thoughts on my sleeve because I'm... I'm... Very open with people, but at the end of the day i I can hide my thoughts from you. but Jesus is perfect, and he knows everything. and instead of rebuking them directly, he just sees in their hearts what they're speaking of. Remember, there's another passage that says, he needed no one to show him what was in the heart of man because he knew what was in the heart of man. And so, he takes a child and sets it among them and says, whosoever shall receive this child in my name, receiveth me. And whosoever me, Whosoever received me, receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you, the same shall be great. Right. So we see that Jesus is answering this question. Who will be great? And it's not the way the disciples think. You remember James and John came to Jesus and said, "Uh, we have a request of you. And he says, tell me. And they said, we'd like to sit on the right and the left of you. in your father's kingdom. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you prepared to drink the cup that I must drink? And they said, yes, we are. And yet at the end, they forsook him and fled. And then they came back. And I just wanted to say also, remember when the, the women went to the tomb and, and they expected to find the body so they could anoint it with spices because they waited out the Sabbath to do that. The angel says, why do you seek the living among the dead? And it says, then... They remembered his words. He had said it many times. And in this passage, first Jesus heals this man... Then he challenges the disciples' faith because he said he said O faithless and perverse generation how long shall I be with you and suffer you bring thy son hither. Then he He goes on to talk about how to be great. Because that's where the disciples were. They were having this dispute. And so Jesus met them where they were. And I'm so glad that he does that. But backtracking a little bit and talking about faith, because Jesus is challenging their faith. And then in another passage, Jesus says, you can only deal with demons by prayer and fasting. And when we read in the book of James, we also, in, I believe, James 1.6, it says, But if you ask, ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like the wave of the sea that goes back and forth and has no stability. Now that's a little bit of my prayer, paraphrase. But I just wanted to go back and talk about this illustration dealing with A dead faith. To illustrate dead faith, it is the kind of faith that would lead a man to take a bottle of medicine from his medicine cabinet. Looking at the instructions on it, he says, I'm sure they're correct. I have all the confidence in the source of the medicine. I know who wrote these directions. I believe everything about it. I know this will relieve my headache if I just take it. But he takes the medicine bottle and puts it back on the shelf. He doesn't lose his headache. It continues on. Yet, he can say, I believe the medicine. I believe all about the medicine, but he still won't take it. That is dead faith. And most people... I I guess I shouldn't say most people, but I wouldn't be surprised if 80 to 85% of the people, here in the Grand Rapids area especially... could tell you that Jesus died on the cross. Most people take that as pretty solid fact that he died on the cross. But I can have knowledge that he died on the cross, but if I haven't applied the blood to myself, if I haven't accepted the sacrifice for myself, I'm still doomed To a Christless eternity. Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 says that if thou shalt believe in thine heart that uh, that if thou shalt... uh, Let's turn to it because I am getting flustered. I want to make sure that I get it exactly right. Um, Romans 10 verses 9 and 10. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe... In thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And then 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And remember, Jesus knows your heart. We already discussed that a little bit in this passage. How Jesus knew the heart of the disciples when they were saying, who's going to be the greatest? He knows your heart. So he's not looking for words. But if your heart is crying out to the Lord, you will be saved. It's not a you maybe. It's not a wait 30 days and see what happens. It's an ironclad Guarantee. And then, finishing up, have you ever thought about what it takes to be great? We can come up with any number of things in the world's eyes. that are great. But if you look at the way our life works and the way even the famous in our life are treated or in our culture are treated, it's always about what have you done for me lately? I'm a sports fan, so uh, there's a lot of analogies for that there. I notice that the day after Super Bowl Sunday the question is always what's the likelihood that this year's champions will repeat? If you have one Super Bowl title as a player you're not as great as the guy that has two and you're definitely not as great as the guy that has one of the richest men in the world and I forget his name I know I've gotten his name wrong in the past but he was once asked how much money is enough? And he said a little more. Because no matter how much we have on this earth the human heart is never satisfied but Jesus does satisfy Jesus said the thief cometh not but for to steal to kill and to destroy but I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly just reviewing our points we started out today talking about a desperate man who sought help for his son. He was at the end of his rope and he cried out to Jesus, and Jesus answered. May we learn from that lesson that Jesus can help us if we call upon him. Secondly, we talked about faith and how Jesus said, You need to have faith to be able to do this. And then he told the disciples that he would be crucified. That he would be delivered into the hands of sinful men. And they didn't understand it and they were afraid to ask him about it. And what do they do? They go right to a primary human concern. That's been a concern... Since the fall, who is the greatest? They couldn't comprehend the spiritual implications of what Jesus was saying, so they asked a human question who's the greatest? And then Jesus, in his patience, gives an answer that only he could give, and turns the worldly paradigm on its head. For he says, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name, receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me, receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. Jesus was humble. He washed his disciples' feet. He created those feet, and yet he's washing them. And I don't know if you ever took time to realize this or not, but he washed the disciples' feet before Judas left. So he washed the feet of his betrayer. How it must have been tearing his heart out that night that not only would Judas flee from him for a moment, but that he would be lost. He says in John chapter 17, I have lost none save the son of perdition. Yes, Judas' betrayal and death was in the ultimate will of God. But it still must have hurt Jesus deeply that Judas would do this. Even though he knew it. On my podcast this past Friday, I, I talked about grief and how Christians should respond to grief and now even Jesus who knew everything from beginning to end in his time of grief he just wanted his disciples to stay awake and be with him even though he knew what was going to happen even though he knew that he would ultimately be alone he says could you not stay awake with me one hour And if the Son of God needs that kind of support, how much more do we? So my question to you today is, have you been in this position of this man who cried out for help, who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And have you had the right response Perhaps you haven't at this point. Perhaps you still need to bow the knee before God. I would urge you to do so. Just sitting in church doesn't save you. Just knowing the words of the Bible doesn't save you. There are atheists who probably have memorized more of the Bible than I have to my shame what saves you is the work of the Holy Spirit after you cry out to Jesus and say with the Apostle Peter Lord save me Peter was walking on the water which he was probably pretty uh, amazed about. You know, he'd seen Jesus do it, but now he was doing it. And as he's walking to Jesus, he looks down at the waves, and he gets scared, and he starts to sink. Why did he sink? He sunk because he took his eyes off Jesus. We need to not take our eyes off Jesus. I'm just going to close with this, that thank goodness that we have the book of Acts. Because if you look at the end of the Gospels and you see where the disciples were at that point, you would think, well, they didn't accomplish much. They didn't do much. They were just frail humans. But then you get to the book of Acts and you see these people who fled from Jesus the night that he died. And you see them commanded by the Sanhedrin, don't ever preach in Jesus' name again. And they said, whether it is right to obey man rather than God judge you, but we can only speak what we have seen and heard. And they they were whipped and released. And they rushed back. And they didn't say, oh Lord, remove this persecution from us. Rather, they said, give us more boldness. Give us more boldness. And I know that it was the Spirit of God and there's no other explanation, but I wonder if the seeds for the conversion of the Apostle Paul were planted by actions like this. He saw the stoning of Stephen. He saw Stephen look up to heaven and say, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And he probably saw Peter and John beaten for their testimony. It would be funny if it wasn't so sad because they healed a man who had been lame from birth. Everybody knew him. They couldn't say anything against the miracle because they knew. And yet, they threatened Peter and John because their own popularity was more important than the truth. And we're living in an age in the United States of America today where popularity of men is more important than the truth. We see men who claim to be proclaiming the gospel of God who do not stand for it. My friends, God is love. But the only reason I know God is love and I appreciate God's love is because I know that I deserve God's judgment. And He took that from me and He put it on Jesus Christ. And Jesus rose from the dead so that I could be free. But if the only thing God is is love, then there's no reason for a cross. But the cross happened because it was necessary. What have you done with the cross? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these words. I thank you for being with me and speaking through me. I thank you that when I falter, your word still prevails. And I just pray that you would be with each and every person here, that if they have not called out to you in faith, that they will trust you and that they will allow you to work in them, to will and to do of your good pleasure, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.